Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So this week I want to think about co-production or co-creation, this idea that we as researchers don't just have to disseminate our research to these uh, people who will just do what we say because we're the experts and uh, and then impact will happen. Um, Increasingly we are viewing these processes of generating impact in more sophisticated ways. Uh, We're moving beyond this idea of knowledge transfer to this idea that it might be a two-way kind of thing and that, you know what, actually this might be kind of joint in some shape or form. And increasingly, the funders around the world are uh, are hiking into this language, um, uh, whether it's EU funding, uh, a number of uh, developing world type uh, funding calls, UK funding as well. Uh, we're seeing the language of co-production, co-creation uh, again and again. Uh, and a lot of us uh, trying to work out, well, what actually is this all about? Um, and I think uh, as a reviewer of grants, uh, it's very clear and you can quite uh, quite quickly spot when someone has tried to learn how to talk the talk, but actually they don't have that experience. They don't really know what they're, they're, they're talking about because you get these little words that kind of slip in, like we're going to educate people. And, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, so, so, so I am here with an expert today uh, in co-production, co-creation, to help us unpack and understand what really is this, and what's at the heart of this. Uh, and Karen Lang uh, uh, is one of my colleagues here at uh, Newcastle. We're sitting in my office with a, a cup of tea, which is very nice. Uh, it's uh, unusual for me to actually be in my office. So uh, thank you for coming to my office, Karen. Um, uh, and uh, what is beautiful about this is that Karen doesn't just research this and create theory. She does this. She spends a huge amount of her working life just being in the right place at the right time with the right people, thinking together, doing together, making this stuff happen. Uh, Karen, one of the things that, uh, that that first kind of caught my eye was the fact that you've been reviewing co-production manuals, coming up with your own guide. Um, uh, and so by the end of this, I'm hoping to come to some very practical advice on simple things we can do that will edge our practice further towards a more co-productive model. Um, but uh, but for those of us who do, co- do, do co-production already, I want to go a little bit deeper as well and, and really think about where that cutting edge is, uh, both in theory and in practice. So, Karen, do you want to just start by just telling a little bit about uh, yourself, um, which part of the university you come from, what kind of stuff you do, um, and where co-production fits into that, and then I'll ask you a few more questions about this and dive deeper. Okay, thank you, Mark, and and thank you for asking me along today. Um, Yeah, I'm Karen Lang. I'm based in the School of Education, Communication and Language Science in a centre for um, learning and teaching, actually. So very much kind of rooted in education. I'm not an educationalist, as in kind of an ex-teacher or anything like that. Um, I was brought into the education department because I do a lot of work around the edges of formal education, looking at um, services and opportunities for disadvantaged children, families, communities, and how we can work in in a more holistic way to um, enhance children and, and families well-being great so you do this day in day out you're working not just for but with these families these these communities these organizations 
Um, so before we started the, the, the podcast, um, you were telling me uh, a little bit about what you viewed as the difference between co-production versus co-creation. Um, tell us a bit more about how you would define these concepts and uh, in kind of plain English, what are they really all about fundamentally? Well, in plain English, they're all, all these different terms are about working together. So it's not academics as the experts, it's everybody working together, experts in their own part of their understanding of, of, of the topic. So, um, but the review that I was um, undertaking was looking at all of these guides and manuals and toolkits to co-production, co-creation, co-design, co-inquiry, all these different terms and trying to understand what they were all telling us. And I think what I found is co-production tends to be used where we're talking about a, a, an organisation, usually a single organisation, but sometimes more than one, um, working with, um, for example, a client group, so citizens, I'm talking about maybe a health service with its patients to look at how better to deliver services. So that's kind of, you know, where most of the guides are for co-production. I think um, co-creation is a relatively um, new term in academia. It's very common across Europe um, and it's becoming more common to refer to the relationship between different sectors, different organisations, which can include citizens, but we're talking about what people refer to as a quadruple helix. And that's a very fancy term, basically, for four different sectors, one of which would be academia and universities, um, another is business and industry, um, policymakers, governmental organisations, local authorities, that kind of thing. And then finally, societal organisations, so perhaps your voluntary sector, volunteers, and of course, you know, local communities and families as well. Excellent. Uh, for me, I do research on co-production. I, I think I do co-production, and this was a distinction that was lost on me, and I, I find it actually really useful. Uh, and so for me, it's not just about the theory, it's about actually what does that tell me about what I can do in terms of my practice. And I just wonder if you can make this a bit more real for us by giving us a, an example of this mode of working from your own work uh, and tell us why, why it worked so successfully. What were the, kind of the ingredients of success in, in your example? Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, talking about co-production, for example, um, <clears throat> most of my work is with young people. And I'm a firm believer that if we're going to do things to make young people's lives better, we're better to start with the expertise of young people themselves. So I'll tell a little story about how a project came to be. I was working on secondment in a, in a local organisation and one day over a cuppa, you know, these things usually do happen over cuppas. I have it in Yep, being in the in, in these places, talking to the right people. And they said, oh, um, you know, we, we don't know what we can do that young girls don't seem to be engaging with the services that we're providing for them or the opportunities that we're providing for them. Do you think you could go and do some research and ask them what they really want, Karen? So I said, well, 
you know, the way I work isn't to go out and ask them what they want. You could do that. But what I'll go and do is find out a little bit more about their lives. So I went along to a local youth group and I went along not once, not twice, but every week and got to know them. And then I said, if I want to know about your lives, what questions do I ask? And that opened the door to us developing a focus group schedule together. And they told me the questions that were relevant to their lives. And then, you know, after we'd done this together, I went and did some focus groups with young people and brought it back to this group. And they said, yep, you know, that's an issue. No, we don't think you've said that bit right, etc. So they worked with me to create a report. Now, what that report didn't do is say to the um, to the professionals in the organisation, you should be providing um, makeup classes instead of uh, sports facilities or, 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 or whatever. But what it did do was open their eyes to what mattered to those young women. And what mattered to those young women um, resonated with the professionals, but needed a different solution. So one very quick example was, I asked them whether they had aspirations for the future, because an assumption is that young people have low aspirations. And they had very high aspirations. But when I asked them whether they thought they would reach those aspirations, they said, oh no, it's not in our control. Anything could happen to us. So, so that caused the professionals to say, okay, so we're pushing exam results as a way of reaching these aspirations, but if they don't think that's in their control, what can we do to, to help them to feel more in control of their own futures? Yeah, I love this. This is, this is deep co-production. I mean, wow. Uh, it's never even occurred to me to actually ask the people that I'm doing research with, what questions should I ask? And what a fantastic question and, and approach to this. And uh, it takes some guts, I think, on the part of the professionals to trust you and say, OK, uh, you're not going to do a survey. You're not going to come up with a priority list of, of actions. You're going to do something kind of different. And, and actually, this is kind of outside their control as well. If they are going to follow through on what comes out of your work, then who knows what that could throw up. But what actually happened in that example was that it threw things up that, that were much deeper than the kind of things that, that they might have gotten through a more traditional approach, which then means you begin to have a different kind of conversation and perhaps some of the ideas that emerge from that are qualitatively very, very different to the kind of top-down, well, we'll ask you what you want kind of consultation mode just taking from people compared to this more co-productive, deeper mode. And for me, what you're talking about here isn't that this is a this is a, a new technique that we need to all start asking other people what is the question. There's actually a there's an ethos, there's a there's a kind of a spirit behind this where you're going in a spirit of humility to these people, getting onto their level, being with them, just dwelling in their space, putting yourself in their shoes, understanding what it is to to be them, and that it comes from that kind of deep place. And it's because you're in that deep place as a researcher that you're then able to access those deep thoughts, aspirations, issues, and be able to work at that level. Is that, is that valid? 
Absolutely. I think it comes down to um, a respect and the fact that I valued what they had to say to me um, that was coming from their perspective. Uh, one of the teachers came to me afterwards and said, you know, you've made me think now about how I'm going to involve these young women in the future because, you know, it's spooky how they responded. And it may just be because they've never been asked before. They've always been told. And I think, yeah, it, it is. It's about... But it's scary as a researcher, actually, to go into that into that <laughs> into we just had a, a small power cut here it just went plunged into darkness um but i do have a battery on my laptop uh, we are still recording so <laughs> uh, yeah so spooky in fact you said the word spooky and the lights went out this is getting very scary <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was halloween not long ago um i mean i think for a researcher that's quite scary territory to be on because you know when you know exactly what you think you're going to ask and you have your methodology firmly outlined you've got your ethical procedure you're in control and what you need to do in in a co-production situation is um not give away that control but share that control and you're never quite sure what's going to happen and i mean particularly in terms of ethics that's that's something that really needs to be considered because it changes it from something you think about at the beginning and tick boxes to to the necessity to become an ethical practitioner and think about what you're doing all the way through um it's, it's very different approach yeah, it is. I think what's nice about what you're saying here is that, yeah, this might sound and feel kind of scary, but what you're saying here is it's not about losing control, it's about sharing control. And actually, when you allow that to happen, then a whole load of creative and curious things can happen. And actually, as a researcher, that is fundamentally motivational. You, you will discover new things, new ways of looking at the world, at your research area, if you will just share that control. It's not about giving it up entirely. One of the things that uh, also interests me uh, about your, your work and, and this kind of deeper aspect to your work is that uh, I think that very often we are, uh, certainly in my own discipline, conservation, um, natural environment, very solutions focused. So it's about co-curating solutions and, uh, and very often these collaborations are based around a research process which then has a bunch of research findings and the impact comes from those, to some extent, perhaps co-produced research findings. But actually what you're finding in, in your research is yes, that is valid, but at the same time, very often it's the, the, the approach that you take to the research that has the greatest value for the people that you're working and where some of the deepest learning and some of the deepest impacts seem to arise. Now, it sounds a bit abstract, but give us an example, explain how this works for you. Okay, I will do. Um, I mean, I do think that often we have this linear um, view of research and, and, and a hierarchy of knowledge that means that we, we want to do things in a certain way and we have a, a particular plan for our research that is robust and, and, and stands up. But I think sometimes in my experience working with people, that's not always what they need. So um, last year I was on secondment, as I said, and the feedback I've got from that has been that um, it wasn't any particular piece of research. 
in isolation that made a difference to their practice. It was the critical questions I was asking them. It was the, the friendly challenge when they talked about what they were going to do because I could bring a body of knowledge with me um, that incidentally was only one set of knowledge around the table. There was lots of other knowledges there as well. But I could bring that experience from academia and those skills that I had as a researcher to ask those questions, to challenge, that made them think in a different way and, and reflect on how they did things. Yeah, and I think those are the kind of changes which are often the deepest and the most lasting changes within an organisation because people are confronted with questions, with opportunities to learn that force them to question their assumptions, to, to rethink things compared to, well, I can carry on with business as usual and integrate a bit more knowledge and an insight here and insight there. Uh, you, you force people to really look much, much deeper. And and that brings me then to this, this idea that as, as researchers, part of our role, if we want to be more co-productive in our research, is, is for us as researchers, potentially, to be to take the role of knowledge broker. Um, now, knowledge brokers come in all shapes and sizes. You, can, you don't have to be a researcher, quite clearly, to be a, a knowledge broker. But um, for those who are, who are listening, who have found their career increasingly moving in that kind of trajectory. They keep finding themselves in these situations between multiple groups. Everyone is looking for them and they seem to just facilitate stuff and stuff happens around them. Um, can you formalize this? Is this something that you can learn, that you can get better? Are there key skills or attributes that knowledge brokers need? Uh, are you born like this? Is it something that you can, that you can practice? Well, I mean, I think we can see examples of people who seem to be natural um, knowledge brokers with the communication skills um, to do this. But I think, um, you know, that there are certain elements that, that, you know, can be can be learned. But I think the the more that we're doing it and the more examples of practice we're seeing and the more examples of where things have gone right but also where things have gone wrong I think are, are kind of becoming a bank for us to draw on and I think those examples of, of, of practice are the most important to learn from because they're context specific because I think as a knowledge broker every context will be uh, have its individual um form and, and function and being able to draw on good practice while having the flexibility to adapt, I think is, is critical. Can you make this more concrete? And I just wanted to just give us an example. Um, is there a, a knowledge broker that you've met in your career that has particularly inspired you uh, or a situation where someone playing that kind of role played a really pivotal um, role? That, that might just exemplify some of the, the characteristics that, that, that really count and that make this kind of role really work? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's several of my colleagues that I could point to who um, have the ability to draw people to them, to identify people that, you know, have common interests and create spaces in which they can come together um, and that doesn't have to be around a project. Projects can come later, but that's about the relational, the ability to say, do you know what, you know, let's get people together in a room 
um, give them something to talk about or give them a shared interest that I know they've got and 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 engender that culture of of, of mutual respect rather than I'm an academic, come and talk to me. Say, I'm an academic and as such, I can get you all, you know, all in the same room and provide a room for you. Let's talk together. Yeah, so uh, quite often I hear people say, um, if we want people to work together, if we want collaboration, um, then we need a problem, we need a project, we need some funding, we need some kind of focus. And and then, yeah, we bring all these people who maybe never met each other uh, to, together around a table um, and expect the magic to, to happen. Um, uh, and clearly, clearly, yeah, we need relationships, we need to build trust. Um, but... Should we therefore throw out the idea of trying to come up with particular challenges or projects as foci for collaboration and co-production um, and just start by building relationships with people who have similar interests and seeing where our noses lead us? What, what, which comes first? What, what is the priority for you? Um, I haven't got an easy answer for that, but it's something that I've been battling with because I think, you know, it also depends on the capacity of people to engage. Organisations work in very different ways. As academics, we're quite privileged. We've got space to think and reflect. Um, other organisations have, you know, stakeholders, beneficiaries, shareholders even to answer to. And I think the first step is, is understanding that, understanding each other, what drives other partners and so that's where the relationships come in because unless you can understand those drivers for people their values their attitudes develop that trust then a project isn't going to be that successful but at the same time in order to develop those those kind of in-depth understandings about each other then you need a reason to come together which is which is often where a project comes into being um, I haven't got an easy answer for that, and I suspect it's different in different circumstances. But it's certainly a key question to ask when you want to work together. Yeah, it's something I've been grappling with as well, and uh, I also don't have any easy answers to it. But um, in theory, I, I don't always follow my own theory, but in theory, I, I try and bring people in into kind of the margins of projects and into kind of small low risk projects to build that trust um but um but uh, even to this day i have big projects i'm leading the projects and there'll be one or two people who are playing pivotal roles who have never worked before and i needed someone to fill that hole it was a bit at last minute someone recommended them here you go and 50 50 it works or it's a nightmare and um, and once you're committed now with someone in a key role in a project and you rub each other up the wrong way it takes the joy out of the process it, it just adds uh, a completely unnecessary level of stress um, and I think that when you stop enjoying your research then you do worse research and I think especially when it comes to co-productive stuff you know, your, your heart has to be in it because you need to give of yourself and your whole self for, for this to work and for you to be fully authentic. My last question then is um, having a think about this guide I think are you writing the guide have you written the guide yet? 
<laughs> Interesting question. Um, I see myself as a facilitator of the process. Um, I'm sitting, you know, in a university and as such, I've got resources to bring people together. But what I want is for this to be something that is co-created between us. Uh, we've had two round tables so far. Um, I've had a call for evidence, um, inviting people predominantly externally from, from academia to, to give their views. And I think what's coming out from that is that people don't want the 40-page booklet that goes on a shelf, that gets read once and goes on a shelf. What they want is more um, of, a, of a kind of uh, resource that gets built up and added to over time. Um, particularly, we're looking at video, we're looking at infographics. Now, um, as such, those aren't my skills. Um, and I'm probably not the right person to be able to, you know, populate those videos and infographics. So the partners that we're going to work with or that, that we have been working with are going to come on board with that and we're going to produce something that's, that's a shared input. Cool. So a kind of an online type thing, which is more interactive, and 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 yeah, well, you're co-producing, you you're adapting to what your your community wants from this. Um, I wonder if you could um, give us one key lesson or your top three things that that you would do if you were someone. Um, who's kind of looking in on this whole agenda, thinking, well, I've dabbled in some kind of consultant, consult, consultant, oh, what's the word for it? Um, consultation type stuff. I've, I've kind of gathered views from people. I've seen that that was quite, quite useful. I've maybe done the odd bit of slightly participatory kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I want to be able to walk the walk of co-production, co-creation, not just talk the talk. What would be some of the key things that are quite easy things that you can do, whether they're kind of fundamental principles, whether they're practical tips that can help people to to kind of just, just go deeper in this area easily? Mm -hmm. I think one thing is to look at yourself and your own motivations and set aside the idea of this is your research, which is actually quite difficult to do. Um, accept that in a, in a true co-creation relationship or co-productive relationship that everybody was is going to bring their own expertise and each one is just as important as the other and so this is something that is shared and co-owned yeah yeah i love it uh, that for me just gets right to the very heart of this that it's a, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of understanding what knowledge is and what constitutes valid knowledge that is fundamentally respectful. It's about saying that I'm here to learn as much as to make suggestions um, and uh, I'm going to suspend my preconceptions and assumptions for a moment um, and genuinely listen. Um, and just in day-to-day -day life, in our academic meetings, let alone in a research project where we're tackling deep issues, when we genuinely listen and, and open that channel of empathy, suspend all of those assumptions, quieten the voice that is coming up with the next thing we're going to say, then incredible insights can come. And might we all be able to be better researchers if we were to take some of these deeper lessons from co-production and mainstream them through our research and through our, our lives uh, more, more, more broadly. Uh, scary for some of us. 
but uh, but I think this is something that is realistic. We can do more than just talk the talk in our research applications. We can start to edge this. But my message, uh, I think, the, the, so your message that I'm taking from this is very much that this is not something you can do at the at the surface of things. It's not a kind of a tweaking of techniques. This is a much deeper look into yourself as a person, um, uh, into what you value and your own ego and to what extent you can suspend that. And if you can't, why you can't, uh, in order that, that you can deeply listen and, and learn. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Mark.